And welcome back to week two of our very Ronnie Rocket holiday special. Let's join the panel in progress. Ronnie and his supporting characters, Bob, Dan, Deborah, the band, the school. I did enjoy, speaking of which, the building of Ronnie, that scene alone was really cool and a lot of fun to read and envision it. Uh, like I said, I think Bob and Dan kind of reminded me a little bit of Laurel and Hardy, that kind of duo that bickers and fights. They're like a comic relief, but an old school comic relief, that slapstick comic relief almost. And, and I think that stood out for me. The whole Deborah thing with them, I like it, those three were a good trio. I just didn't get what, what, like, was she giving them free room and board and all the, anything they wanted and she would seduce one of them every night. I, I just didn't get that. It, and then, you know, then it becomes even weirder because then you have Ronnie in there and Ronnie's like a son almost like they, they have to bring him to school. They have to teach him how to speak and, she kind of becomes a mother figure. So maybe it was this, uh, like maybe Ronnie's thinking about a mom and dad, like a, having a mom and dad or something like that. And Deborah was kind of that Freudian figure where it's sexual, but then it's mother-like uh, later on in the story. I don't know. Um, and then um, the whole band stuff was ridiculous, but it's a lot of fun and it's very, it kind of has that like, you know, 80s kind of it reminded me like you know those 80s movies where the band's gotta gotta win the big contest to save the school or something um it's kind of have that feel to it uh what do you guys think uh, joel i'll start with you um with this group of characters yeah i think um they're probably the most colorful characters in the movie i think uh, what john said about the detective characters right he's sort of a uh, audience insert kind of you know guides the narrative it's more terry who provides some sort of entertainment value i feel like as a as a the, you know terry and the people he encounters dan and what's the other one's name now i'm forgetting bob, bob. How, how could i forget bob <laughs> dan and bob really and and deborah too the trio of them really carry that part of the film i think especially on the page and uh the, their dynamic yeah abbott and costello laurel and hardy that the kind of um uh, Headley and Wilson thing, except a, a little more give and take in this case. I feel like they sort of, both of them kind of gave as good as they got. And then they both, I mean, are, are we not giving away spoilers? Or is, you can give away like, spoilers. Okay. <laughs> Don't want to ruin Ronnie Rocket for people. Um, yeah. And then they both, they, they all die. Like they're like brutally massacred and then they just come back for something like did i miss something or is there no real explanation of why they're suddenly alive again <laughs> it's like did he accidentally switch you know put an end of one draft at the end of another i don't know yeah yeah just a quick reaction to um dan and bob and deborah i you know when i first read it and of course when you're reading it you don't you're missing so much of what lynch would have put on the screen i mean you're only getting a tenth maybe of what the scenes would have been uh, with the sound and the, the direction and the blocking and the lighting, you know, all of that. Um, so when I very first read it and just had dialogue, I, I kind of um, was put on guard about Deborah. I thought she was a manipulator and that she was she was using Dan and Bob for some nefarious purpose. It was only later that I got the sense that, okay, this is kind of a 
this is a family unit and they care for one another and there really is something you know genuine there between these three people and they yeah and then they they sort of make a child yeah uh, because they they you know they want to complete themselves maybe they were where they want their family unit to be uh, and they care for ronnie they, they really do. They seem to really worry about him when he's in trouble. They want to make sure that he's, you know, that they're there for him when uh, he needs them. So that I thought that that came across in the script. And I thought that was interesting. Um, and certainly I agree with with the two of you that they uh, the Dan and Bob uh, uh, characters are funny and the way they play off one another. Like, the, you know, there's one scene where I think I forget which one, but let's say Dan is going to leave the room to go with Deborah, And he says to Bob, do not work on the ears <laughs> do not do not do this without me i really want to be involved and then you get the scent you can almost visualize how lynch would have directed it you know bob is sort of trying trying to restrain himself and then he finally breaks down and he starts working on the ears and and then dan comes in the room and he sort of sees what's happening and you you can again visualize the humor of his eyes going wide and 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 i thought well they were going to argue and fight and and they were going to be at odds but the next scene they're working together again you know they, they've patched it up and they're like they're friends and so that through the script that relationship came through and i i thought it was very interesting it was it was there i think lynch had a real strong idea of who these people were and how they related to one another and that came through I, i'm sure it would have come through even more strongly in um you know had it been filmed School's out for the day. Ronnie. Ronnie leaves the room. The hall is practically empty. The clock says 3.30. Ronnie grabs hold of his plug, and as he walks down the hall, he looks from side to side for an outlet. There are none in the hall. He comes to some steps leading down to the basement, and he follows them down looking for an outlet. Finding no outlets on the steps, he pushes the basement doors open and enters a large room where a rock and roll band is setting up to rehearse. They are getting equipment together and tuning up as Ronnie enters. The musicians are factory greaser types dressed in black suits. The band is not big time, but they do have managers. The main manager is a fat man who is mean and powerful. His name is Mr. Barco. His associate is Mr. Green. Ronnie goes to the opposite end of the room and plugs in minding his own business. There are a few other kids in the room waiting to hear the band play. You guys are late setting up for rehearsals again. I'm sick of this. We're not gonna win any record deal tomorrow night if you guys don't get to work. I'll pull my money out quick. I'll break a few arms too. We don't wanna manage a bunch of losers. We may not want to, but I think we are. Hey Johnny, let's go. Sorry, Mr. Barco, but we got a lot of equipment to set up. We're almost ready. Johnny plugs in some big amplifiers and microphones. All the equipment has a very foreign look to it. It is equipment that is very strange looking. The microphones are very large. The amps and speakers and equipment are all jet black and very strangely designed, like a cross between 1920s electrical and a gloss black Porsche Speedster. The band is ready and they warm up by playing about 15 seconds of very cool music. Then Johnny stops and takes a long cord and finding no other place to plug it in, goes over to where Ronnie is sitting to use his outlet. He and Ronnie look at each other. 
as Johnny plugs in his cord right above Ronnie's. Johnny is carrying his electric guitar, and in order to test the new change, he turns his guitar on and begins to play. Suddenly, out of Ronnie's mouth comes a very strange, loud musical sound. The sound scares Johnny. Ronnie then lets out another strange sound, a musical scream, and one of the band's speakers begins to vibrate, and it blows out. Ronnie begins to make some new strange sounds, sounds he has never made before, and he begins to twitch in a rhythm, and for a short while, something begins to happen, but Ronnie pulls his cord out and stops. The entire band is staring at Ronnie. Outside, Dan and Bob pull up to the high school and wait for Ronnie. Back inside, Johnny is still staring in disbelief at Ronnie. What happened? Let's get to work. Leave that kid alone. What's going on here? Wait a minute. We could use this kid. I've never seen or heard anything like him. We could use this kid, Mr. Barco. Mr. Barco thinking, then looking at Mr. Green, eyebrows go up. Then turning to Ronnie, squinting at him. What's your name? Ronnie is silent. Hey kid, what's your name? They walk towards him. Ronnie remains silent. Johnny, take him over and see what he can do. Come here, kid. Johnny takes Ronnie over to the rest of the band up on the stage and puts him in front of a microphone. When everyone is set, he puts Ronnie in. Instantly, he screams, but he and the music cause the scream to be beautiful, and then he twitches and moves in rhythm with the drummer. Ronnie begins to make strange sounds, which work together with the music. Some more students hurry into the room, drawn by the music. The managers hurry into the room, drawn by the music. The managers notice this. The kids are staring in disbelief at Ronnie. Johnny sings a few lines, and Ronnie mimics him in a very strangely cool way. Ronnie starts to vibrate, and he turns around, and all the instruments change together, going way up and then down. Ronnie looks great in front of the microphone, and this rock and roll is totally crazy and heavy, and the students who are witnessing it are spellbound. The band is really going. The song ends. The people break into applause. Ronnie is gripping the microphone. As the applause dies down, someone yells out, What's your name? The others begin to ask. As the applause is almost gone, there is a short space of silence coming up into which Ronnie inserts... Ronnie Rocket. People begin to say his name out loud as they burst into applause again. Ronnie tries to pull his plug, but Johnny has to help him. When Ronnie finally gets unplugged, he starts walking backwards in a circle and finally falls down and sort of collapses. There are a few screams by some girls and lots of murmurings. Mr. Barco and Mr. Green hold the kids back as they try to get up close to Ronnie to see if he's all right. Just then, Dan and Bob enter and look around. They are about to turn and go when they hear someone mention Ronnie Rocket. They go into the room. Finally, they see him and rush to him. What happened, Ronnie? What happened to him? He was playing some music with us, and I guess it got him tired or something. Are you the kid's father or what? 
Yeah, come on, Bob. Let's get him home. Dan picks up Ronnie and carries him out of the room. Mr. Barco to the band. You guys keep rehearsing. We'll be right back. Mr. Barco winks at the band. Get that kid. Mr. Barco and Mr. Green catch up to Dan, Bob, and Ronnie by their car. The doctors, Dan and Bob, stare at Mr. Barco and Mr. Green. We're very interested in your boy there. Why? What did he do? What is it? Hey, wait a minute. He didn't do anything except make great music. Your kid's got something. We think he could be big. I mean, your kid's got something. We want to make a deal. Together we can make more money than you ever dreamed of. Are you his father? Yeah, Bob's my partner. What's the deal? Ronnie is feeling much better. And during Mr. Barco's talk, he has wandered out onto the ground in front of the school. As the deal is being made, Ronnie wanders around. He looks up to a window in the school and sees a boy and a girl. They are talking. Then she pushes him. He pushes her. Then we see Mr. Barco and Mr. Green from a distance talking with Dan and Bob. Then, Ronnie's acne-covered face looking up at the window. The boy and girl come together in a long, tender kiss. Ronnie watches them. Then Ronnie turns and sees Mr. Barco and Mr. Green shaking hands with Dan and Bob. Then, from a distance, we see Ronnie standing alone, turning in a small circle. To end this panel discussion is more of a what-if question. If Would David Lynch's career have been the same if he got to make Ronnie Rocket? Um, if Ronnie Rocket was his second film, this is what if, this is just like a, a different universe, as as uh, <laughs> they say at the end of Ronnie Rocket. Because I was kind of thinking about it. I'm like, oh, would this been, that means potentially he might not have made Elephant Man because maybe this could have been another seven years. Or it could have been one of those things he stops and goes back to. So maybe Elephant Man, and then he goes back to it. And then, but then I feel like, you know, he changes so much with time, uh, his, the story elements. So a part of me feels like, oh, if, if this was made, it could have been missed opportunities. And I don't know, like also this movie, the way it was presented, would it have changed his career? What other people saw of him, you know? Um, would this have turned people off of him or would they be more intrigued by him? I know because there's so many crazy elements. I know it's kind of a weird what if kind of question, but I was just kind of like, I'm curious to think, what do you guys think if this movie had been made? Like this movie, this script itself gave us so many great things. This, it's like the script that keeps on giving, I think. So if it got made, I feel like, I feel like his career still would have went the way it would have went, but I feel like some things, I think Elephant maybe he might not have done. Um, and some other things that could have got him um, more money or getting his foot in the door with people and making those connections. Um, any thoughts? Anybody wants to go? Yeah, I would I'll just jump in. I'll try to make it quick. I think, you know, the what if world you're 
you're describing is really not reality. <laughs> and, and I say that because hmm. I think Lynch, um, I think after he made Elephant Man, he wanted to kind of join the Hollywood scene. And, and, and I say that, you know, it, um, it's not that simplistic, but I think he wanted, he wanted to do something a little more mainstream. And I think he, he was looking for something that would sort of call some more attention to him than just Eraserhead did. I think this if he had made this film, and somehow he could have made this unique, very, um, you know, des designed for a very specific kind of audience, a midnight movie kind of crowd. Mm. Um, he might have become known as this quirky filmmaker uh, who makes these really odd films uh and and you know i think he's he's talented he's one of the great filmmakers of all times his talent wasn't going to be stopped he was going to continue right. to create and people were going to recognize the talent um but for for him i think it was a, it was a, an effort on his part to break away from Eraserhead and try to do something that would get a little more notice from the, the, the Hollywood scene. That is, you know, the, the powers that be, the studios, right, and the money people, and and so, that, and so that's why I think he made Elephant Man, and then from Elephant Man he made Dune. I think probably thinking, oh, now I'm going to be, you know, you know, Spielberg level type movie maker. Well what happened to lynch was that he was not going to let go of those ronnie rocket like tendencies <laughs> so he makes a movie that the de laurentis were hoping would be the next star wars but it he's just not going he's not going to allow that to come through and so he makes dune and what happens after Dune is then he, then he says, okay, I'm going to focus back onto the things that are important to me. And that is final cut, small stories about, you know, the psychologies of characters. And so then you get Blue Velvet right after that. And so I, I think, um, I, I, I'm not sure this film ever could have happened. Mm. And, and, and Lynch says in that interview where we, where we were talking at the very beginning of the podcast, you know, after he had kind of established himself as a known artist, he lost interest in Ronnie Rocket. He, he, you know, he wasn't. He probably could have gotten the money to make something that would have would have approached the vision he had on the screen. But he, he, he. But that by that time, he had thought, okay, now I understand how the film industry works and how, as a creator who wants to maintain his vision, some, you know, I the purity of my vision, you know. Uh, I understand how it works and I know how I'm going to have to proceed from this point forward. And Ronnie Rocket probably still would have been pretty tough for him mm. to do. Anyway, I don't know. I really bounced around there. I think if somehow the film would have been made, he, he, it would have been made for a smaller, you know, a smaller audience would have appreciated it. Right. He reached a very large audience with the Elephant Man. And I believe that's what he was hoping to do when he made Elephant Man. Yeah, I mean, you want to be recognized by your peers. And I think Elephant Elephant Man did that, you know. So it made people notice him and um, take him seriously. Uh, Joel, any any thoughts on if he had made this movie or not? Yeah, I think that's a great observation that it's, uh, it's just, it, it's almost impossible to imagine a world in which this does get made because it's a racerhead mm. level 
weirdness and obscurity, but on a much grander scale that would have required far more resources, I think. Um, so it almost can only exist as this kind of fantasy project. But mm -hmm. it, it, in a theoretical world where he makes it, I think um, it, it's it's impossible to say, but I think I prefer the one in which he didn't just because what's most interesting to me about Lynch is the journey he's on as a filmmaker over the years. Exactly. And in some ways, it's strange to say about somebody as unique as and as as sort of full of his own ideas as he is. But in some ways, he was almost more of a passenger than a driver. You know, he responded to circumstances that greeted him and he took opportunities and found out where they would lead him and they led him in new and fascinating places. I think a world where he somehow makes Ronnie Rocket as his second film, and this might sound a little dismissive, I don't mean to be too dismissive, but because um, I like this other director's work quite a lot, but I think Lynch would have become more of like a Wes Anderson type figure who has a certain niche aesthetic and they deliver that and they do it beautifully and nobody else can do that. And that's what they do sort of film after film. And to me, the Lynch who goes off and tries to make a blockbuster and fails and then makes Blue Velvet in that way and then goes to this, you know, he goes to this extreme of popularity and he has a TV show and he, the TV show derails and he makes this strange obsessive film that nobody wants to see. And then he starts making these dual narratives where one of them is from a pilot and all of these circumstances where it just kind of like, he he greets the circumstances that finds him, that, that, he, that he finds himself in and does something with that is to me more interesting than the one where he goes off to his corner, he composes these strange little works that are, you know, great. Like, you know, sort of like with his paintings, like his, if his films were more like his paintings, I don't want to say the films would necessarily be less interesting or compelling in their own right, but the overall arc of Lynch would fascinate me less, if that hmm. makes sense. I want to interject yeah. here and say I totally agree with uh, what uh, Joel is saying there. And it reminds me of a quote that Lynch uh, made about a Firewalk With Me. I'm, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but uh, you know, he envisioned McLaughlin playing Cooper in a much more prominent role, um, you know, was going to be essentially the Chet Desmond character. And, uh, and then he couldn't do it. McLaughlin said, I'm not going to not going to participate. And um, Lynch says, um, when somebody asked him about it, I don't even know if it was me who asked him about it, <laughs> but somebody asked him about it. And he said, there are no obstacles. There are only opportunities. That's a great, wow, yes. what a great uh, statement. And, and so it was like, okay, now I can't use McLaughlin. Well, what can I do? I'll do this. I have a theory, but we won't get into it. But the same thing happened to Mulholland Drive. You know, Mulholland Drive is like, okay, I've got this. What can I do with it? I'm going to do this. And and um, and there's a there's a story. Um, Gino Silva plays a small role in, um, in Mulholland Drive. We interviewed him and wrapped in plastic and it, Gino talks about going up and watching Lynch painting the 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 room number onto Adam Kesher's apartment door and Gino Silva says and, and and he's looking at Lynch doing this little painting of the room number and Lynch turns to him and he goes isn't this the greatest thing you know that we're doing this as if he's just in the moment of creating and no matter what gets thrown at him like Joel says it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to use it. I'm going to turn it into something else and and uh, and capitalize on it. So so I I just am reminded of those things when Joel describes the arc of his career. I think that's it.
yeah, I think you guys are both right. Uh, I mean, I yeah, you know, ultimately, I don't want to think about a world where this movie was made. I, I feel like this script is just like a goldmine of ideas and small nuggets that he got to do. I, yeah, that's I, true. Was that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he really got to do a lot of these things in uh, another capacity in the future. So I think that's really cool. And I think it's just kind of a cool piece of uh, David Lynch history. Um, that's either you know about it, or you don't. I mean, I didn't know about, I knew about Ronnie Rocket from Ben, um, but beyond that, I, you know, we really talked about it. You know, I didn't, other than 25, uh, 25 years later, did the article about it. Rehearsal Hall. Dan and Bob and Deborah look at each other worried because Ronnie has been talking to himself in the microphone, saying frantic little half-sentences, word fragments. Johnny is trying to work on a song and find out new sounds Ronnie can make or cause the band to make. Ronnie speaks into the microphone. Night. Hole. Circle. Stop. Bad circle. Diana. You guys try different things this time. We're getting somewhere. I want to use this guy. Use him to our best advantage. Right, Mr. Barco? Get to work, Johnny. Bang! Jump! Ronnie Rocket. Ow! All right, let's go. Go. The entire band is now wearing black rubber gloves and boots in order to protect themselves from the electricity. Johnny plugs Ronnie in. Ronnie's eyes bug out and he starts to shimmy across the stage. The drummer Al is going with Ronnie. Fred and Johnny start experimenting. They move levers and walk closer to Ronnie, stand at different angles to him, etc. Their sounds start going up and down or louder or softer. Sometimes speakers begin to screech and Ronnie himself is twirling, crawling, jumping, gagging, mimicking Johnny's voice or lying out flat on the floor, twitching. Electricity is flying all around. After the rehearsal, Dan and Bob attend to Ronnie. Ronnie has bad eyes and a dopey look, also a small amount of blood in the ears. They are very concerned for his health. Bob is checking out Ronnie's electrical device because he is now waking wide-eyed, then nodding off to sleep in the next moment. Ronnie? Ronnie. Ronnie nods off. Bob gives him a shot and they plug him in. Mr. Barco comes in the room. How is he? Not good. We're hurting him bad. Fix him. I don't want to keep hearing discouraging news. If you need any medicine, uh, materials or whatever, I'll get them, but keep that kid working. If he's hurting any more than this, it's over. Take care, my friends. Quit threatening me. I've been very cordial and nice. Don't let's get nasty. You'll never win that game with me. Just get set to enjoy your fortune your little rocket's gonna bring in. You know, Barco, I don't like you. How would you like a great big fat bloody nose? Oh yeah? Bob hauls off and slugs out toward Mr. Green. Mr. Green catches his hand and crunches it. The bones breaking make a sickening sound. Bob falls down moaning, holding his hand. Dan flies toward Mr. Green and shoots a punch into his stomach. 
it doesn't do much. Mr. Green then decks Dan. Dan bleeds from the mouth. Ronnie, Dan, and Bob are all hurting and moaning. Do you want to stop getting money? Do you want to go to prison? Watch out. Next time, Mr. Green won't go so easy, but there better not be a next time. See you at the recording studio at nine tonight. Green and Barco leave. Bob's hand is pretty bad and Dan is not feeling too good either. They stay on the floor. Ronnie is watching them. Things aren't working out too well. Uh, thoughts on the ending. Now, we're going to spoil the ending. Uh, obviously, if, like I said in the beginning of the show, stop, read it, uh, come back and listen. Uh, or you just want us to talk, you want to hear us talk about it and you don't care. We're going to spoil the ending. And the ending is bonkers. Um, I was like, obviously, there's parts. I saw part eight of the return in this you know, you, uh, like you said, Joel, people do die, people do come back. There is a go- there's golden orbs, there's multiple. And John, I, I'm thinking you'll know more about this than me, but there seems to be something with Hinduism. Um, there is a, uh, like a, a girl on a lily pad with four arms. And I think that has like something to do with Hinduism. Um, and there's like, a like everything turns into an orb, a white light hits, then there's a guy's back with a little girl. She's talking about will there be other universes or whatever. And you know, the father figure says yes. And then you see this lily pad with this woman with four arms, sort of like one of those those gods in Hinduism and it says Ronnie Rocket, the end. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? Uh, so, uh, John, we'll jump to you first on this. Let's back up a little bit from that ending because that's sort of the the, the postscript to the ending of the big action where the detective, who has now somehow reunited with the dead characters from the other storyline, um, hmm. Bob, I think, right? Bob and Dan and Deborah come in, and they're now they're going to all work together. And so this is where you wonder if the whole thing. The whole storyline is, not say imaginary, but dreamlike in that you can't say one is more legitimate or valid than the other, that they're both reflections of of Ronnie's mind. Because, in fact, it it actually says, I'm jumping ahead here. So they're trying to stop this figure called Hank, Hank Martell, Mm -hmm. and he's the bad guy in the detective story. And if they can stop him, then they'll fix everything. And so the detective finally confronts him and there's some sort of uh, conflict and everyone is contributing to, to help him defeat Hank. And there's a line in the in the script. It's not dialogue, but it's descriptive um, information. It says the detective becomes distorted. He looks exactly like Ronnie looked oh, in the hospital basement. Yes, yes. Inside the detective's chest, his heart is pounding smoke billows out. So you get the sense that maybe we thought the detective or I, I was interpreting the detective as an element or an aspect of Ronnie's mind. And now you wonder if both Ronnie Rocket and the detective were both elements of Ronald's mind, whoever Ronald was at the beginning of the story, this mm. sort of figure who's laying in bed. And anyway, they, these, uh, I believe, <laughs> I can't remember all the details, but <laughs> they defeat the bad guy, right? I mean, isn't that it? They defeat the bad guy and yep. there's a device and uh, there's um, a click 
and then um, oh, someone's head falls off, and then there's sort of it all fades to white, right? I mean, isn't kind yeah. of that how, how it yeah. happens? Which really sounds like a, an ending to a Lynch film, <laughs> and and so then um, there's music, and then there's there's light, and there's uh, color. Obviously, there's a description of um, well, the, the characters are all smiling. Uh, they floating, right? Diana floats out of the light toward the detective. Um, the city lights up with a golden morning light, which actually reminded me of the short film from Hotel Room, Blackout, where uh, the two characters are in the in the hotel room and the, the lights are all out and they kiss at the end and the lights come on. There's this blinding white light that comes on. And you've got music, you've got floating, and then you've got golden space. It says the whole city is golden inside of Ronnie. So Ronnie is a golden egg. So this idea that whatever happened, and I, I don't know what happened, <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a transformation at the end. There was something new that was born out of this story. And um, there's an egg. Uh, and of course, there's a golden egg. The idea egg is going to hatch open to give us something brand new. All these wonderful terms are being used like gold and light and um, and floating. These are things that Lynch has used before to convey a sense of happiness that better times have come. And then, yes, we get these new characters that we've never seen before, a little girl and a father and the little girl says, Father, when will all the new universes be born? And um, and he says, soon. And when they are, I'm going to get you a great big chocolate cake to celebrate. And so there's the sense that they're on the cusp of new universes being born. And then finally, we have uh, one character called the Blue Woman, which reminds me of the end of Mulholland Drive, where we have the, the, the woman in blue at Club Silencio at the very end. And she says, I think, she just says silencio, correct? I forget what the yeah. last line of it is. And the blue woman here says Ronnie Rocket. Um, the idea that he's been reborn. Uh, he, he went through whatever he went through. There was this transitional space. And then he was born again. And so for me, having written so much, and I have a very specific interpretation of Twin Peaks The Return, I will not bore everybody with it. And I will not go into all the details. I will just say for me, the Return is a story about the end of one age and, and perhaps the beginning of another. We don't see that other, but we do get to the very end of a dark age. It's a Hindu concept. Mm. And um, Joel's probably tired of hearing this because we just had a three-hour <laughs> conversation about it. <laughs> the more, the, more uh, but, the merrier. But, but, but those, those, those elements are in The Return. They're very deliberately placed there, the idea of a dark age golden age following a dark age blah 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 and all of that kind of finds um it's it's start uh here in um, and, and maybe in arguably in some earlier lynch works as well but but kind of explicitly on the page here at the end of the script of ronnie rocket well said john i, I mean I, I love it joel your thoughts on on, on this yeah no I, I especially after that conversation i had with him i was reading this like this is almost just a straight up literalization of what uh, John's sort of theory of the return is like get, uh, I think there's like, isn't there's just sort of a, you know, I, I can't remember if they're, when they tie the villain's shoes, they're trying to like 
switch the current or something with the electricity, yeah. but there's some sort of explosive energy released with the electricity. Mm -hmm. And I think Ronnie's rocket might be singing, sort of wailing like Carrie Page screaming and the lights boom. And then we're into something else. And in our conversation, we talked about how it's frustrating for me that if that is the case with the return, it just stops there and it doesn't give us anything else and this gives us that quite <laughs> that's quite, what you were uh, looking for give, yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe yeah we'll see what maybe in wisteria but um yeah no i i mean i was just really struck by that and it it is it really does strike me and it's funny i've sort of thought about this but i've never really focused like lynch's films almost all end like the exact same way almost <laughs> with like a face filling the screen and light flooding the frame and the music reaching a crescendo that's like they all i mean eraserhead mulholland drive lost highway the elephant uh, man elephant man definitely Firewalk with me mm -hmm. uh i mean some of the others i guess not but like more than half of them and in that exact hmm. exact configuration that's like his go-to there's a although sequence. i guess this one goes a little further with it then there's a sequence in in, in um in inland empire yes. where laura dern's character is bathed in a white light there's actually more ending after this but this yeah. is very close to the ending she's bathed in a white light and she sees a ballerina on a stage and she yeah. smiles um which to me um parallels audrey's story in uh, the return but um but but that's near the end of inland empire and it's sort of these releases of energy and and, and joyous reaction to it um that we go through these dark trying torturous times perhaps but if we can make it through the payoff is relief release and transcendence at the mm. end yeah the thing with the father and daughter is interesting as well for a couple reasons both related to firewalk with me one because um i believe in this in the script for firewalk with me there wasn't an angel and all that it was laura sitting on cooper's lap in the red room which i have to think came directly from this um, and then he went in a little bit of a different direction. He has Cooper Moore standing by her side, comforting her, which I think works better. But I think the image came from this. And also just um, the father-daughter thing is interesting because earlier in Ronnie Rocket, there is a suggestion or a strong hint of incest where the, the daughter is coming on to the daughter, I guess, Ronnie Ronald's sister um, is coming on to the detective. Yeah. And in her room and then the father's banging at the door and she and as he runs away she says i'll tell them all what you're doing to me if you don't stop and it was like okay that to me was strongly implying that this was something that had gone on between them right. um, which of course evokes firewalk with me so there was and to see lynch put it in that sort of flippant a manner where it's like almost like a gag throwaway line but then deal with it like it was obviously something that uh, fed into Twin Peaks as a whole, that that was the secret at the heart of Twin Peaks, you know? Wow. I didn't even think about that. That's very, Yeah, that's I forgot very about it until I think um, John was mentioning something about uh, something. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to find, I've got both scripts of Fire Walk with me out. I'm sorry to, to the, throw a speed bump into the podcast, but I'm trying to find the part where she's sitting on his lap. It's the um, one that's online. It's the last, it's like literally the last image of it. They don't end. 
Uh, well, they they have. Oh yeah, there stuff. it is. No, no, I've got it. No, I've got yeah. it. This is actually on the shooting draft. This is not the uh, pre-release draft. I'm holding the yeah, shooting yeah. draft. It says um, we move we move back to see that Laura is sitting in Cooper's lap in the same chair. That's the last line. And this would have been this would have been the draft they were. Yeah, they were shooting. It's a shooting yeah, draft. Yeah. This is the one where most of what we see on the screen actually made it to the screen. That's a very interesting observation, Joel. I, I missed that entirely, but you're right. That does seem to parallel Firewalk with me. And then, of wow. course, uh, it's funny. So we read one draft. I think the other draft has might actually have more Twin Peaks references. I don't know if now is a good time, but at some point I, I looked up my notes from the video research I was doing and I'd written them all down. Should I save those for later? Or? Um, You know, we're like i we only have like one i, I go for it joel let okay it, I, yeah let it rip <laughs> so let's see so one was as as um john mentioned the the face superimposed and there's also in the other ronnie rocket so like the way you find it online is you google ronnie with like a y for some reason the mm. earlier draft i believe it's the earlier draft is Ronnie with a Y. And there's also a beautiful woman's head superimposed over the image somewhere in that, which I don't think we see in the other script. But there's no. like, so there's like two images of like a somebody's head superimposed over. And then let's see, what else do I have here? Definitely, oh, okay. So in addition to Dougie going, you know, being uh, this, this sort of incompetent character thrust into the real world and everyone's sort of shepherding him through and acting like he's sort of normal. It also reminded me of Nadine going back to high school very much so, mm, mm, which is funny one. because yeah. you know, I think sometimes we don't think of that as like a Lynch plot line, but it is something very Lynchian about it, really. <laughs> that, I mean, that whole storyline is like Ronnie Rocket, really. Okay, here's a big one. So in the other script, and I'm almost positive this isn't in the one that we sort of focused on. I'm just going to read this line verbatim from the script. Page 59 and Ronnie Rocket with a Y. All around in the dirt, there are insects which look like a cross between a frog and a moth. These things are flitting and crawling and making hideous sounds. So obviously that is calling back to his, um, I think it was like his visit to... Paris Hungary or, or Yugoslavia oh, yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On his like European trip with um, Jack Fisk when they were teenagers or young in their early 20s. And uh, they saw these strange moths that were like jumping up and down like frogs somehow. And it always stuck with him. And then, of course, he turned that into the frog moth in part eight. Mm -hmm. And just as the frog moth is crawling into um, the girl's mouth in that, there's a slug that crawls out of Mr. Fry's mouth. I think that might be a character name change because I don't think Mr. Fry is in the second draft. But in the first draft, I think they call the villain Mr. Fry. And, uh, and so there's like, a you know, insects. And also, um, the, no, the villain actually is called Mr. Magic for some reason in the first draft. And he turns into a black tar ball, which looks very much like stuff that happens in the Red Room in season three. Mm -hmm. And uh, it says Ronnie moves his hands and Bob and Dan and Deborah appear as little angels floating around him, which made me think of the image of Laura with the flanked by the two angels, like the Laura portrait in um, Andy's vision in part 14. And uh, those were the aspects that really jumped out to me when I uh, first read that script. So I don't know if you guys, you may have already made a reference to this, or maybe it's so obvious it doesn't even need to be mentioned, but the sub title to Ronnie Rocket, yeah. <laughs> the film, is 
the absurd mystery of the strange forces of existence. That's mm -hmm. that's you know on the script, and I think probably would have been on the poster. Well, Albert says that exact same line to Tammy Preston at the very end of uh, part three. They've just gotten the phone. Cole has just gotten the call that maybe they've found Cooper, and he rushes out of the office and. Albert turns to Tammy and he says the absurd mystery of the strange forces of existence, which is, you know, a deliberate reference to Ronnie Rocket by David Lynch wow. right there. He is saying, OK, I am pulling this line now at this point. You know, you want to be careful about how much you want to say, OK, well, Ronnie Rocket is the, is the real story of the return. I think in the return, David Lynch was pulling from all his works. He was like, yeah. you know, this is my opportunity. I've got 18 hours. I am going to I'm going to indulge myself in some of my Hindu philosophy. I'm going to indulge myself in my love of Kafka. I'm going to I'm going to reference works um, that I've made over my career. And um, and then this is just one of those references uh, to, to Ronnie Rocket. Mm -hmm. But all the things you just listed, Joel, and some of the others we talked about, you really do see in Twin Peaks The Return, these, uh, you know, these Lynch sort of pulling from a script he knew he probably would never be able to make. So here was his chance to make parts of it or to, to um, to pull in the things that still were, you know, bouncing around in his head from it, and he was going to take the opportunity to to do some of it in in the return. Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, I, I think season three is definitely like his magnum opus. You know, it is pulling from everywhere. Also, isn't Albert looking at a picture of Kafka? Or Kafka? Well, the, they're uh, in the office. The, I think uh, the the Kafka portrait is there, but so is the is the gigantic picture of yeah. the uh, mushroom cloud. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> god, that's pretty cool. That is a great find, John. I wanted to let you know that in 2022, I will be having my first Twin Peaks book ever. Yeah, I know. Isn't it weird? I've actually never written a Twin Peaks book. Uh, it's called Firewalk With Me, Your Laura Disappeared. And it's about the 30th anniversary of Firewalk With Me. All right now, you want to pre-order it. And I know what you're saying. Scott, you're always begging us to pre-order. Well, you know, the pre-orders are where it's at. I'm going to do a limited run of Firewalk With Me that's going to be in color on the good paper that Laura's Ghost and my Moonlighting book was done on. Those are only going to be sold through the BlueRoseMag.com and FayettevilleMafiaPress.com. And you don't want to hear this. You want to get back to Ronnie to Rocket. I get it. But while you're listening to them act it out, maybe you pick up a book and you get a classic. So back to the show. Exterior, dark field, gatehouse, night. The detective and Riley are led through the darkness by Bill, who holds the gun on them. Terry follows. They approach a small gatehouse by a huge, old, corroded chain-link fence. Above the gate, there is a dirty, neon, white circle of light. A crowd of knitters have gathered and are following the detective. Isn't he a honey? Ooh, I could just eat him up, they say. Bill is furious with the knitters. Damn knitters! 
Get the hell out of here! Terry to detective. See the circle? Shut up, Terry. No one's talking to you anymore. Watch out around here. Shut up, you two! Now stop right there at the gate! Knitters move in closer. Get away! Get out! Bill goes into the gatehouse furious. The detective watches him talking to two men in uniform. Riley shares a nervous look with the detective. Terry paces, and as he paces, he paces up near the gatehouse. The detective watches him curiously. Terry moves near the window of the gatehouse. He stands, looking inside. The buzz of the neon circle is loud. Now the two guards are coming out with Bill. The knitters have now moved very far away in the darkness. This I gotta see. Hey, which one of you can stand on one leg? The detective steps forward. You? Yes. Let's see you do it. And while you're at it, we heard you could speak as you do it, so do that too. The detective raises his foot once again and holds it up with his hand. As he stands on the one foot, he speaks. The detective's motto, stay alert, concentrate, stay clean. Far away, the knitters all ooh and ah, so impressed with the detective. I'll be damned. And he's close to the line too. By the way, tell the detective what that old line is. The guard points to a point beyond the gate, then to the detective who remains on one foot. See out there around that rock? That's about 40 feet inside. That's where the power will hit, and you sure as hell won't be able to stand on one foot out there. You'll feel ground dip way down, and as you go in there, you'll feel it come over. And the closer you get to station, the worse it gets. The detective comes back to a two-legged stand. Are there people in there, other than Hank Bartels? Sure there's people. They're all over the place. You'll love them. Take them in, Bill. Okay, you guys, let's go! Come on, let's show this detective what he's missing! Come on, go! He makes the detective and Riley go first and hurries to follow. In the distance, the knitters all call, Careful! So long! He and the other guard laugh. <laughs> it's been good to know ya. The darkness seems to swallow them up as they go through the gate. They are getting closer and closer to the rock in the 40-foot mark. The detective looks back, but the guardhouse is so dark he can barely see it, and it seems at least a hundred feet away. Now he looks at Bill and Terry. Bill is smiling such an evil smile. Terry is looking nervously about. Riley is looking at him and nodding at the marker rock, which they just passed. The ground begins sloping rapidly downwards. The detective looks out ahead. Darkness. Old pipes. Oily black ground old wires. An electric hum is heard slightly. Then suddenly the hum is thunderous. The buzzing is deafening. They all, except Bill, begin to walk funny. They have trouble keeping their balance. Now the detective looks back. The gatehouse is gone. Bill is laughing, but the other sounds drown it out. The detective holds his head. He feels so strangely ill. Riley is unable to walk correctly. Terry is struggling. The sounds now begin to decrease, but the effect of the electricity remains. Suddenly, Terry yells out, Now! He leaps onto Bill's back, knocking the pistol away. The pistol flips up, out, and into a small oil sludge pool, and it disappears. Get the gun! 
The detective smiles up at Terry, then quickly runs to find the gun, only to realize that it's sunk beyond retrieving. It's gone. Terry is riding Bill around as if he was a horse. He tries to bring him down, but Bill is too strong. We gotta kill him! Hurry! Find something to kill him with, quick! I can't hold him! Riley and the detective race and wobble around in the darkness trying to find some sort of a weapon as Terry rides the screaming madman Bill around in a wild circle. Finally, Riley finds a piece of iron pipe and yells out then gives it to the detective. The detective weighs it in his hands then goes after Bill. He swings. He hits Terry in the back. Ow! Not me! Sorry! He swings again and this time hits Bill real hard in the head. Some blood shoots out, but Bill remains very strong. Bill screams out. He tries to kick the detective. The detective swings again and smashes Bill's nose. Blood gushes. He swings again. The swing misses. Riley finds a rock and waits for a good shot. He throws and hits Terry square in the head. Ah! Sorry, Terry. Sorry. Riley goes to find another rock. The detective swings again. This time the pipe lands on top of Bill's head. There is a loud cracking sound and more blood, but Bill keeps going even wilder than before. The detective hits again and again, striking severe blows. Terry wrenches Bill's neck this way and that, trying to bring him down. Riley finds a brick and finally finds a shot. The brick hits Bill in the forehead. He staggers. The detective connects four more times with solid blows with the pipe. Bill's smile and his screams disappear. A dazed, wild look takes their place. He falls to his knees. The detective raises the pipe as high as he can and gives Bill the final blow. Bill collapses face first into a small mound of sludge. The three of them share a look of relief as they catch their breath. Thank God you're on our side, Terry. Did you ever have a doubt, sucker? You know I did. Terry smiles, then Riley and the detective follow. Suddenly, Riley produces from his pocket a black electrical box and several feet of cord. <laughs> Look what I smuggled in. They all laugh happily then. Terry's smile fades as he stands up. I don't know why we're laughing. This place is the worst. There's people here. Yeah. But watch out. They'll kill you for nothing. A lot of them have warts. All sorts of diseases. God. What are we gonna do? Take it easy, Terry. Let's just not get caught by any of them. And find Hank Bartels. Yeah. And then what? He's worse than all of them put together. What can we do? We won't know that till we find him. Then look. We have to try and save Ronald. Riley looks at his black box. There's a hell of a lot of bad electricity around here. They head out into the darkness. But, gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for giving us your insight. I, 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 This was a fascinating show. I learned a lot, and it makes you think a lot about this project and Lynch himself, uh, the way he thinks. Do you guys have any final thoughts uh, about Ronnie Rocket? Well, my only thought is I really am glad I got to look at it again because um, it's going to support some of the ideas I'm writing about. So Absolutely. I'll try to incorporate <laughs> it in to what I'm writing. That's great. Uh, anything, Joel? 
did we mention i think we forgot to mention so that well we can end on this note unless i did throw it in there when i was talking about the other draft there's a uh, i mentioned it before we started recording but i don't think i mentioned it in the episode there is a line in the first draft that's deleted where a girl is arguing with somebody in the street who's sort of threatening her and she i'm gonna pull it up here so that I can actually quote it verbatim. Loud sounds come up and Terry goes running off crazily. The detective is frightened and now he's left the place he was supposed to stay in and he's lost. He's on a street with large low-class hotels. He stands in the shadows in front of one of the hotels and overhears a part of a conversation between a hard low-class girl and a smooth greasy tattooed man. Girl. I got idea man. You take me for a walk. She moves closer to the guy. Under the sycamore trees. Closer. The dark trees that blow, baby. In the dark trees, I'll see you, and you'll see me. I'll see you in the branches that blow in the breeze. I'll see you under the trees. Guy, I'll twist your neck. Girl, no, 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 you won't. I'll run away from you. Guy, I'll catch you. I'll catch you in the dark trees and kill you. And the girl says, no, no, no. So maybe that's the birth of Twin Peaks right there. Wow, yes. Yeah, that's great. The sycamore trees. Yes. That, that, that's essentially the lyrics to the song. Yeah. The lyrics and then yeah. the guy threatening to kill her under the dark trees. It's like, yeah. wow. Yeah. I thought I thought for a minute you were <laughs> the guy say, I'll catch you with my death bag. Yeah, then you it know, would the really be. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That is awesome. Exterior, inner city, night. Note, all inner-city scenes will have distorted walking and talking. The detective, Terry, and Riley all have knitting needles, pincushions, and various pain devices tied all over them. They all look like Van Gogh bandaged after he cut off his ear. Still, they walk and talk strangely. When they feel real strange, they pierce themselves with another needle or pin. They are in a very brutal area of the inner city. They are just now entering a dark street of row houses. They are creeping along in the black shadows. In the distance, a gigantic black electric factory can be seen spewing tons of black smoke out through 100 black stacks. Giant electrical hums and arcings permeate the air. The small streetlights rattle and pulsate violently. It is as if a thousand subway trains were just below. We gotta get off the street. There's all those black coats out to kill us. We should find a place to stay inside. Quick. All right, let's find a house. Let's look inside some. Find one that looks good. They sneak up to the closest window and peer in. Inside, they see a very dirty, fat man in a t-shirt tying a knot in a big rose. His face has many warts. Next house. You don't get it, do you? Get what? Never mind. What the hell are you mumbling about now? Tell me. Nothing. Except that things keep going round and round. You gotta remember that. Round and round, round and round. Get it? What the hell is there to get? That's why I said never mind. Fresh face. Never mind is never mind. How would you like it if I started yelling, never mind, here? Just shut up. They creep to another window. Inside is a fairly nice-looking, dark-haired woman with just a few warts on her face. 
Her house looks dark, except for back in the kitchen area where she is pouring herself something to drink. They stay crouched down outside the window, playing it safe. Uh-oh, here come some more black coats. A gang of men in dark overcoats come walking quickly down the street. They each look with fear as the gang approaches. Stay down and shut up. Terry! Shut up. Terry, listen. What did you say about everything being a circle? Hey, let's have a nice talk about this. Later. No, now. Well, whisper then, or you'll be looking for your arms and legs all up and down this street, sucker. Okay, okay. Tell me again about the circle. It's like I said. We go around and around like a merry-go-round. Where it stops, nobody knows. I know. Where? With Hank. Okay. Maybe so. Did you ever look at those symbols Ronnie gave me? How one of them looks like a broken circle? Do you remember how mad that donut man got when his shoes got untied? Hey, you're not pulling the symbolic bit on me, are you, big fella? Well, maybe you're right. These symbols are important, maybe. A broken circle, a broken shoelace, both the same. Life's a donut. A circle. The circle club. The circles of the gatehouse. I think he's right, Terry. Okay, so how does it help us? Wait a minute, bud. You want to try out your theory? How? We wait here for a donut man. They they always are tying their shoes. You're right about that. And they're getting mad. But that day, someone pointed out the shoelaces out. Someone yelled, your shoelaces are untied. So you yell it out, and we'll see what happens. You gonna do it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll give it a try. Detective Terry and Riley behind bushes watching the street. Here comes one. But look, he's with a whole bunch of black coats. Yell it out now while they're far away. Okay. Are you guys ready to run? Yeah. Ready? Ready. Yeah. Do, Do it. it. Your shoelaces are untied! There is a pause. They see the donut man stop, look down at his shoes. Suddenly he screams. Two black coats catch on fire. Then the donut man bursts into flame during his third horrifying scream. All the other black coats disperse instantly. The street is quiet. Three burning bodies in the distance. Terry, Riley, and the detectives stare at each other in silence. Wow! By God! Great balls of fire. Do you think it'll work on Hank? I don't know. It sure worked on them, though. It, it sure, sure did. did. But will it work on Hank? I don't know. It sure worked on them. It sure did. Back to Main City. Newspaper headline. Ronnie Rocket shocks the world. Newspaper photo of Screaming Boy. Caption underneath reads, It burns! yelled one young boy. Newspaper photo of small child on bicycle. His mother stands next to him with plate of dinner. Caption underneath reads, He rode a bike steadily for seven days. Cause? Electricity from Ronnie Rocket concert. Newspaper photo of group of girls' hair standing up in the air. Caption underneath reads, It makes us feel funny. Newspaper photo of screaming girl. Caption underneath reads, I can touch him. Call me Electra Cute. Newspaper photo of tap dancing girl. Before Ronnie Rocket, I didn't know what tap dancing was. 
So, uh, gentlemen, before we we shove off, uh, you guys uh, want to promote anything uh, you want to throw out there? Uh, and uh, John, we'll go with you first. Yeah, sure. Um, well, let's see. By the time people are listening to this, I the last episode of the podcast, season two of the podcast I do with Josh Minton in our house now will probably be out by then, by now. Um, we've done, as time we're recording this, we've done nine of the 10 episodes. So I do the podcast with Josh. We talk about, it's, it's, um, specifically devoted to uh, Twin Peaks The Return. We, we take a, an idea, a character, a theme, and we kind of try to dive deep into it. And so uh, that podcast is out now wherever you get your podcasts, um, season one and probably all of season two. Um, I have worked with Scott Ryan on the Blue Rose magazine. There may be another issue coming soon. Um, I don't know, but hopefully. And uh, I am working on a book about Twin Peaks, The Return. And um, I don't really have anything to announce right now, but if anyone is interested, just, uh, you know, keep your ears and eyes open. Hopefully something will be out next year. Yeah, you can find my work on lostinthemovies.com. And this is gearing up and 2022, depending how things go, probably be even more the same. The busiest time I've ever had. I've got um, at least a couple pot or three, at least three podcasts going right now. Uh, the weekly slash daily lost in twin peaks where every week I cover a different episode and every day I put up an episode on a different aspect of it. It's, um, taking my patron episodes and slicing them up for uh, the public basically. So around Christmas, I'll be getting close to the killer's reveal. That'll be early January, I think. So that will definitely be up. I'm also doing monthly Twin Peaks conversations on YouTube and then uh, more than half on Patreon, on my Patreon. Um, and that is so far, I've talked to, at the time of this recording, three people, including two of the people in this uh, conversation. So <laughs> you've both been guests on that already. <laughs> And uh, and beyond that, I, I'm hoping to do my Twin Peaks. Well, I'll say almost certainly we'll do my Twin Peaks character series that I put on hold five years ago almost in 2017. I'm finally going to do it in 2022. And as a result, there are like half a dozen other projects that I haven't even mentioned here that I may this week, depending how this week of the recording um, goes, I may have to put a lot of those on ice because this stuff is turning out to be even repackaging things is way more time consuming than I thought. <laughs> so, and eventually more journey through Twin Peaks videos after all that other stuff is done. Nice. And yeah, we had a great time uh, doing your Patreon and your podcast. That was a lot of fun. Joel. Yeah, you guys were great. Both of you. Great, great guests to have. Thank you for helping me kick it off. Inner City. The audience is applauding and now stamping their feet. The fire has returned. It burns even hotter. The soul's tormented crying is now audible. The moving floor has now brought the detective and his friends closer to the end of the stage and their final fall into the sea of fire. Terry's sore is bleeding profusely where he is jabbing at it. The pain intensifies and his eyes focus. His fingers dart out around Hank's feet, busily untying Hank's shoelaces. Hank takes delight in stamping on Terry's fingers, but the pain it causes only helps Terry. After one very hard stamp, probably snapping some delicate finger bones in Terry's hands, the audience laughs uproariously. Uh, thank 
you, Hank. Between you, Stampin', and my bleeding sore, I'm able to do my work. <laughs> Bob, Dan, Deborah, and Riley are still clinging to each other. Any minute now, there should be a noticeable decrease in Hank's power. It'll only last a second or two. The detective has to be ready to take advantage of it. Look, Terry's got one lace untied. It's getting hotter, my darlings. Will we be in time? Remember, I love you boys with all my heart. This is the way, I believe. Love is the most beautiful thing. Main city, night, concert. The big sax band plays heavy music. Ronnie's head bangs up and down on the floor, bleeding. Inner city. Hank Bartles jumps toward the detective and now he makes his head change into the head of a dog. He growls and moans. With the audience cheering, Hank raises his fingers and blows open the detective's chest with electric power. No! No! The detective is so distorted now, he looks exactly like Ronnie looked in the hospital basement. Inside the detective's chest, his heart is pounding. Smoke billows out. The souls in the fire scream now very loud. The floor is moving the detective dangerously close to the fire. The detective's eyes roll about desperately trying to focus. His lungs are wheezing, his veins and arteries pounding along with his swollen, smoking heart. Sweat is pouring out of his brow. Hank changes back to Hank and smiles close to the detective's face. The detective struggles to turn away. His eyes focus on something deep within the oncoming fire. He struggles to see and then it finally becomes clear. He sees Diana within the fire. She sees him. He screams. His head turns in anger to Hank Bartles. His eyes roll to Terry. His brain perceives that Hank's shoelaces are untied. He swings his ever-so-heavy head and sees the black box all tapped in, Bob, Dan, Deborah, and Riley waiting in a huddle for the right time. He sees the fire looming close. He hears the power of the electricity, the screams of Ronnie, the screams and soundings of the audience, the swelling sound of the twisted music from the ultimate discordant orchestra. He sees Diana. He sees Ronnie. Now instantly, the power drops. Hank turns, stunned. The detective tries to remember what to do. Terry waits. Bob, Dan, Deborah, and Riley wait. Suddenly, Hey, Hank, your shoelaces are untied! Hank looks down. He sees! As his head comes up, the loudest yell imaginable rushes forth from his mouth. Also, fire shoots out with his yell. The fire burns outward, cutting a swath through the audience of Hanks, killing many of them, and ending by blowing a huge hole in the circumference of the giant glowing circle symbol in the back of the theater. The detective lurches forward and grabs the triangulator. He grasps it firmly. His friends watch with profound relief as he turns the triangular perfectly so that all the electricity in the city is reversed. There is a nice solid click as the new position locks. There is silence, a pause. Then Hank's head falls off. Then he collapses. A wind blows all the Hank audience away to darkness and moaning. The fire turns to white light. Light radiates. The souls begin to float. The orchestra music becomes perfection. 
The music is beautiful and powerful. In a powerful rhythm, lights begin to pop on outside, destroying the darkness and destroying the donut men in the black coats. They burst into flame and become part of the new light. The detective, now looking very good and normal, Terry, Bob, Dan, Deborah, and Riley all stand, smile. Diana floats out of the light toward the detective, a happy smile of love. The city lights up with a golden morning light from a gigantic new sun. Ronnie glows white hot on the stage and floats up. The crowd chants, Ronnie Rocket! Some yell, he's floating, he's, he's... The band and all around him disappears in golden white light. Ronnie floats up golden in space. The detective, Terry, Bob, Dan, Deborah, Diana, Riley, all float and merge inside of Ronnie. The whole city is golden inside of Ronnie. Ronnie sings his love song. Ronnie is a golden egg. The egg appears in a room now. The room has an ocean for a floor. In the room, many tiny golden eggs float. A small girl sits on her father's lap. We see the strangely beautiful girl, but the father's back is to us. Father, when will all the new universes be born? Soon. And when they are, I'm going to get you a great big chocolate to celebrate. Oh, Father, really? She hugs him. And as they get up to leave, we move with one little golden egg across the room to a blue lady with four arms who is doing a strange dance on a lily pad. One arm stops dancing and reaches out. A finger touches the one little golden egg. The woman smiles and laughs. <laughs> Ronnie Rocket. <laughs> the end. So there we have it. The script that was never seen and still I guess wasn't seen because this was a podcast, but probably you closed your eyes and, and you pictured Aaron Cohen dressed as a rocket. So I'm sure that that was pleasant for everyone. I want to thank Ben and Brian for letting me host their year-end show like I've done for since 1987. That was the first year we did this. Ah, oh, it's moved so quickly. It's nice to have Ben and Brian back. Sorry we didn't get season four for Christmas, but maybe next year. Sure. Please support all the Twin Peaks endeavors out there. It really makes a difference to us at the Blue Rose Magazine and Fayetteville Mafia Press, where we're trying to get these books out and we're trying to keep Twin Peaks alive. I know there's going to be some exciting events in 2022. I'm working on one myself, so make sure to follow me at Scott Luck Story or Blue Rose Mag One on Twitter or the Facebook page. Follow Ben and Brian. And have a great year, and who knows, maybe next year there won't be Twin Peaks uh, coming back just like there wasn't this year. Have a good one. So, Brian, what did I miss? Well, you missed the entire show, man. Where were you?
I don't you know, I thought I'd shave and look good for the holiday special and stuff. <laughs> you you were getting shaved and changed to a suit. You missed the whole yeah, show. I was like, I was gonna go all out. I mean, I I had to look my best for this, and you know, it takes time. It takes a few hours and stuff. But I'm sure I didn't miss too much, right? There was, you know, did Scott Ryan show up? Yes. Joel, yes, John, did yes. he have the unseen players? They all showed he up. Like he, he brought the fireworks and everything. <laughs> the whole King Caboodle, and you missed it all. But you look good. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, it's awesome, though. I'm so glad that we could cover Ronnie Rocket, though. I mean, it is, it is one of those things that, like, it's amazing that, you know, Lynch was thinking about this during Eraserhead. Yeah. He, he thought he really thought around Twin Peaks because you know like, during Twin Peaks time he was at his highest. I mean, p- people were in love with David Lynch, and it seemed like he could make whatever he wanted. And there was this opportunity for Lynch to finally make Ronnie Rocket, and then it it still yeah. fell through. And so it's just one of those things that has been there, and Lynch has thought about making, and you know it probably never will get made now. But it's cool that we get to talk about it. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool that we can preserve the history of Ronnie Rocket because it's something not a lot of people know about. I didn't really know about it. I heard you talk about it, but I didn't know what it was. Um, And I think for Lynch fans, it's a nice little, it's like a gem in the, you know, under the Lynch and earth, you know, you're just like, oh, I've consumed all the David Lynch things. Now what? And then you're like, oh my God, this thing's (laughs) been hidden in plain sight. Um, Right. Yeah. And you can also see, I mean, I think this is so true with Lynch he has these ideas and then he kind of reworks them into other stuff that he did so you can definitely see some you know he's definitely playing with electricity and he's playing with these different characters that could kind of turn into other characters down the line and you know maybe there's a little Dougie there (laughs) there's a lot I mean Ronnie Rocket to me is almost like yeah it is like this treasure trove of ideas that he will later on expand upon mm. and I, I it's like a foundation to you know um to the house that david lynch built you know right is that, um, this is a rough draft and, and yeah and he'll take that and he'll he'll rework it into something else yeah so i feel these nuggets did turn into things that we've all seen so i think ronnie rocket is the gift that keeps on giving honestly right well that's yeah. awesome well, i hope everybody enjoyed this i'm glad that we get to we get to come back and do this special and and share this with the community so that's awesome so thank you everybody thank you a big shout out goes to the unseen players thank you so much taking your time before the holidays to record these things you know we we appreciate it a lot so thank you so much for doing that you guys rock and, and thank you to Joel and John for, for being on the panel to discuss this. And it's, 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 you know, I'm sorry I wasn't there to hang out with you guys, but we'll, we'll have to have you back again. Yeah. And Ben, thank you for looking so sharp and missing the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for the next one. I'm ready. He's ready for next year's holiday special. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, 2022. 2022. And we hope to be back in 2022 with potentially uh, with Mark Gibbons and David Bushman talking about their newest book, which you can buy now. Murder at Teal's Pond is on Amazon. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's out now. I recommend getting it. It's like learn a little bit about what inspired Mark Frost to make Twin Peaks. Right. Yeah, definitely. And um, we hope to have them on in January. We We went over this in our our little episode before the special. If you haven't listened to that episode, 
go back and listen to it because we talk about all that. But we hope to see you guys all in 2022. So happy new year. Happy new year. Happy new year.